Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Well, thank you so much for coming out on this chilly evening tonight. Um, as always, it's always an absolute honour for me to acknowledge country and to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we stand and were assembled upon today. Today I'd like to acknowledge and show respect to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. When we acknowledge Gadigal land, we're also acknowledging the lands of many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations across Australia today. Aboriginal lands and cultural knowledges that were appropriated and transformed into the wealth of the Australian nation all in, in turn became the, built the institutions of government society that we all take for granted today. It is to the elders and custodians of these Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, past, present and future, that on behalf of the university, I'm incredibly honoured to acknowledge and pay respect to. There are many examples of the diverse knowledges and intellectual properties of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples that were given, shared and unfortunately more so often taken. It is a blight on all of Australia that this historical experience stands as the foundation of so many aspects of our modern society. The sharing of knowledge is, of course, a continued tradition across many organisations such as the university here. And as we share our own knowledges, teachings and learnings, we should always also be mindful of and pay sincere respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. <clears throat> so tonight's event is Arts in Aboriginal Australia, Decolonisation or Reconciliation? Reconciliation Week in 2017 is an opportunity for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community to reflect on what people think reconciliation is not only doing, but actually seen to be doing, and what, it is, what it's trying to achieve, its ambitions of bridging the historical separation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and the modern Australian nation state. What does it mean for meaningful reconciliation to take place, and what evidence is there of the tangible evidence of the benefits of reconciliation? Just in the last week, we have heard from Aboriginal people around the country what reconciliation means in some sense in the contemporary political arena. It simply means the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander sovereignty. The Uluru Declaration gives us a clear guidance of what Aboriginal sovereignty looks like, evidence of what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been asking for from the start of colonisation. To quote a couple of paragraphs, this sovereignty is a spiritual notion the ancestral tie between the land, or Mother Nature, and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom, remain attached thereto, and must one day return thither, to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished, and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. Makarada is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. As the University of Sydney is about to embark on the building of the new Dr. Chowchuk Wing Museum project, which is due to open in 2019, the university museums are also asking ourselves the questions of how do we meaningfully engage with the museums, the experiences of museums of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. What do these collections embody and how do we embed the diversity experiences and opinions of what these objects signify? Or how even if the representation of these objects that museums hold deep personal ramifications for the home, these collections, not only in, collections are not only museum objects, but in many cases, ancestors themselves. 
Tonight, we are very fortunate to be able to bring together four incredible speakers with a diverse range of experiences in the arts, museums, and community activism to offer, to offer us some personal reflections on what their experiences with reconciliation, decolonization, and working with community have taught about moving forward into the 21st century. Our first speaker tonight is Stephen Gilchrist. Stephen, belonging to the Yamachi people of the Ngata language group of Northwestern Western Australia, is Associate Lecturer of Indigenous Art at the University of Sydney. Stephen is a writer and curator who has also worked with the Indigenous Australian collections of the National Gallery of Australia, Canberra, the British Museum, London, the National Gallery of Victoria, Melbourne, and the Hood Museum of Art, Dartmouth College. It's a great pleasure to bring, invite Stephen to speak tonight. Well, thank you very much for coming tonight and thank you, Matt, for inviting me. Um, I'd also like to begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to their ancestors of the past, present and future. And it's always good to be reminded and to remind ourselves that our lands and our words and our bodies are still sovereign. So I wanted to quickly talk about an exhibition that I curated called Every When, The Eternal Present. Um, in Indigenous Art from Australia at the Harvard Art Museums. And the provocation of this exhibition, which was principally designed for an international audience, was really to imagine the world otherwise, to think through, between and beyond, what we've been presented as the dominant narrative of Indigenous art and culture. Colonisation is not the meta-narrative of Indigenous art and culture, so how can, can we recalibrate our understanding of a much larger indigenous worldview that is outside the jurisdiction of the state, that is separate from but equal to Euro-American regimes of art history and anthropological discourse, and how can we contribute, how can this contribute to our process, our own process of unassimilation? So I began thinking about time um, and how it is folded into indigenous artistic, social, historical, ecological and philosophical life. Indigenous people have been defined and confined by time, by art and social histories, by museums. So it was important for me to find ways to immerse people in an Indigenous understanding of time that could be potentially productive and generative. Um, in his 1953 publication, The Dreaming, uh, Australian anthropologist William Stanner wrote, one cannot fix the dreaming in time. It was and is every when. So the elastic paradigm of the every when was used in the exhibition to explore the ways in which Indigenous people conceptualise, mark and manipulate time. So four themes that really began to emerge were, um, uh, were seasonality, transformation, performance and remembrance. I wanted to explore other ways of being in time the rhythms of seasonal time, the shape-shifting of ancestral time, the measures of ceremonial time, in addition to colonial and post-colonial time. I think one of the big misunderstandings of the dreaming that I wanted to convey is that it doesn't merely preserve the past, rather it speaks of eternal becoming. It is the totality of Indigenous knowledge and its future potential made alive through both its immediate and continuing transmission transmission. Gesturing insistently towards the future, the dreaming pushes ancestral memory into the present. In a similar way, I began to conceptualise the archive of the museum, 
not as this site of temporal collapse, but of temporal activation, where these registers of the past, present and future become active and activated. This really became apparent when I was tasked with uh, using objects from the Peabody Museum um, <clears throat> of Ethnography and Archaeology at Harvard, which is one of the oldest museums of its kind and has over 1.2 million objects from around the world. And, you know, when you are symbolically given these keys to these institutions, you feel incredibly humble to be the caretaker of these ancestral objects. And then you put the key in the lock, you turn the key, you step inside and you realise it is haunted. So what is the productive value of lingering in this space of discomfort? How can we not be the haunted, but how can we do the haunting? Of course, the exhibition isn't merely about time. It is also about power and who gets to claim time, history, place, cultural memory. The essential question for me is not why we are excluded from cultural texts, institutions, art histories, formations of nationhood, but why are we part of these systems to begin with? The norm is a disruption for Indigenous people, so how can we disrupt the violence of this normative condition? For me, one possible strategy is to return to the foundational narratives of place, people and practice, and to weave those into the exhibition's premise. <clears throat> the invitation for the visitor is you know, was to become synchronous with the every, every when, even if only momentarily. It was to indigenize an experience and to allow the presencing, the awakening, the surfacing of indigenous ways of being, seeing and knowing, and to seep, um, and to seep into their skin and to transgress their consciousness. Every exhibition is a curatorial exercise in wayfinding. Sometimes you follow and find ideas, and sometimes ideas find and follow you. Throughout the five years that I worked on the exhibition, I was exploring the possibilities of indigenizing museums. So I wanted to talk a little bit about this methodological approach, what it looks like, why it is important, and how can museums be more receptive to this process. Having a reconciliation plan, as many museums do, is a good place to start. But perhaps we should also think about having plans of decolonization. When I first um, visited the Peabody Museum, one of the first objects, um, I didn't really have a clear idea of what I wanted to see, um, as I didn't really know what was there. But with the former collections manager, Christina Hodge, I began pulling out drawers, looking, seeing, listening, smelling these incredible objects. One of the first groups of objects that I saw were these beautiful ridgy, these engraved pearl shells that um, we had in the exhibition. One in particular was a broken pearl shell in, with incised geometric designs that were infilled and rubbed with ochre. What interested me was that it represented this fragment of material culture that was thousands upon thousands of miles from where it came from. But even in this narrow storage aisle, it voiced this promissory moment of reconnection. I wanted the objects to go through this process of renewal, through return, in unique and symbolic ways. <clears throat> Museums have and do represent loss for Indigenous people, and this object literalised these ideas of brokenness, of being incomplete, and that which is incompletable. An important component of this idea of reconnection was also touch, and so I deliberately chose objects from the Peabody's collection that were cradled, worn, 
held close, performed and struck. So in the exhibition we had these kulamans, um, basketry, mats, pearl shells, drums and three Lara kitsch, hololog coffins to demonstrate a life lived through objects, a life that is real and worthy, that demonstrated the lifespans, the life ways and life cycles of Indigenous peoples. Interestingly, we received instructions from the Kimberley Land Council about these pearl shells, about who exactly could touch their objects. Touch is conditional and also relational. One of the themes was also performance. I was interested in not describing the ceremonies themselves, but I was interested in rhythm as a measure of cultural time and a unit of cultural value. So I borrowed this incredible warup, this um, drum from the, Metro from the Torres Strait Islands, um, borrowed from the Metropolitan Museum of Art to symbolize this idea of beat, this beating that resonates across time. But I also wanted this object to reference the history of collecting practices, but also to be an intervention into these collection practices. Many people in North America knew or had heard about the stolen, in gener stolen generations, but they might not have thought about these objects as also representing a multi-generational theft. I wanted these objects that we selected to represent the ceremonies that never were, the ceremonies that never could be, but also potentially represent this conduit of reconnection. Cascading from corner to corner like a stream of consciousness, Vernon Aki's text-based work, Many Lies, is produced in, reproduced in Helvetica, the most commonly used typeface in advertising. The lone speaker's voice attempts to deconstruct the constructed nature of Australian history and lay bare its violence, violent practices. The written word is implicated as a tool of this violence, and the speaker articulates the internalised pain of these textual falsehoods. The final line of Many Lies undermines the politics of reconciliation um, and healing that have been a national aspiration for you know, more than two decades. Forgiveness and letting go has been an important part of the reconciliation movement, especially as the national apology also implied a symbolic pardon. So this is the last line. I live and all I have are pieces of truth, but with my little pieces, I am unflinching and unyielding. But for the artist, the ethics of witness and remembrance are paramount, and in this cool emotional register of someone who has nothing more to lose, forgiveness is necessarily forsaken. Poirot describes cultural practice in a way that captures its immersive and ritualized character. He writes, our heritage is not a sealed package we pass from hand to hand without ever opening, um, but rather a treasure from which we draw by the handful and which by this act is replenished. The new indigenous museology is one that gestures towards this participative and relational experience of culture. Today, the role of the indigenous curator is to ensure that objects are not only cared for materially, but are culturally and spiritually reconstituted. For Indigenous curators, objects are merely notation, but when they come into contact with communities in real and symbolic ways, this notation becomes music. Decolonization and indigenization are theoretically distinct curatorial and conceptual practices. And while both, I think, are necessary and productive, the former is necessarily a political act of recuperation and the latter a form of cultural manifestation. As Audra Simpson and Andrea Smith identify in the context of North America, 
Decolonization is essentially a problem of recognition. To be native or indigenous or Aboriginal is to be recognized by and through the jurisdiction of colonial nation states. Decolonization can only be a coherent strategy when viewed through continued colonial subjugation. In contrast, projects informed by processes of indigenization are grounded in the intellectual and political genealogies of indigenous people and signals that colonization is not and has never been the meta-narrative of indigeneity. The practices embedded within this logic are not just ways to milk the poison of colonization. It is, in fact, its antidote. Thank you. Thank you so much, Stephen. Um, I have the really unenviable job tonight of actually trying to get our speakers to stay to strict time limits. It's just very unfair because it's uh, so much incredible information coming through. Our next speaker is Shani Jones. Shani is from the Kapi Kapi and Waka Waka, nations of southeastern Queensland. Shani has worked across New South Wales government sectors in the arts and creative industries, education institutions, as well as the health sector. From her work as Senior Aboriginal Cultural Development Officer at Arts New South Wales, she has this year moved to the Australian Museum to take up the position of Manager of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Collections. It's a real pleasure to welcome Shani to speak tonight. Thank you, Matt. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and to my fellow panel members, Amanda, Stephen, and Rodney. I would also like to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of the land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and to all who make this land their home. I extend my respect to Aboriginal elders and ancestors past and present, and to all Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people gathered here on this land, including our young people our future Aboriginal leaders for who are our vessels for the ongoing aspiration of a unified, inclusive Australia. As an Aboriginal woman from Cubby Cubba and Waka Waka country, it is with immense pleasure that I'm here this evening in great company discussing matters close to my heart. As an advocate and change agent, where do I begin to define what is my daily lived experience as an Aboriginal woman working in Australia's first public museum that is only 190 years old? I have reflected deeply over many days and restless nights, and my third eye undeniably reveals that this, as we know, is more complex than the mere semantics of language. Terms like decolonization, deconstructing, or reconciling, but firmly placed in the counterbalance of strategy that values Aboriginal arts leadership, alternate discourses, and the cacophony of being caught in multidimensional worlds. How does the notion of the continuum of culture and Aboriginal arts play out in an institution dominated by the microscopic examination of the other? How do we move beyond our colonised past and break our psychological shackles to create a vision for cultural equality? How do we recognise and deal with ongoing transgenerational trauma within our institutions, experienced every day as we step into the white prism? How do we protect our own from cultural and spiritual harm? I ask you, is this decolonization or reconciliation? Or is this an ongoing crusade and demonstra demonstration of resilience that is 60,000 years old? 
As an Aboriginal woman with custodial responsibilities for 23,000 cultural objects and 1 million archaeological objects, my cultural obligations are to my community. To enable and embed first rites of passage for all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mob to rediscover, to reclaim, to rewrite stories facilitated through an ongoing access and engagement with their cultural material, their ancestors, my ancestors. As cultural custodians, we are charged with an immense responsibility to ensure due diligence, including the handling, engagement of, interpretation of, the display of, the acquisition of, and publication of our cultural material, yet ensure that we treat our knowledge holders and traditional custodians with respect and authority as is their right. We must also do no harm and safeguard the cultural collections and our ancestors from harm and from harming each other. I don't necessarily mean the physical harm or the damage of an object, but the acts of the battle in the other world the spiritual dimension where our ancestors exist for all eternity, unless they are rightly repatriated to country and their traditional lineage is restored. We must understand um, the need for observing protocols when we enter the collection stores and greet those ancestors with respect as they are confined, dislocated, some discontented with this interference and unrestful place. It is authentic Aboriginal and cultural leadership, critical in our institutional decision-making powers that will influence long-term collaborative partnerships with Aboriginal communities and the sector to resource the redistribution of cultural competence and self-determination. But how will we achieve this? And have we even commenced? We must first mobilise the culture of the institution before we can truly move forward a shared vision and strategy that values our traditional knowledge systems and way of interacting with this world in this dimension. But there are many other dimensions if we only look deeply within ourselves and within each other. By creating a groundswell of cultural authority and knowledge, we can reimagine, reclaim our narrative through shared reciprocal learning and exchange of Aboriginal arts and cultural practice led by Aboriginal practitioners. If we are truly to self-determine a shared future in a multi-dimensional prism, then it is our individual and collective voices through insight as agents of change, as facilitators of culture and cultural expression that will strip bare the establishment, refocus our priorities, enact rights of perceived or augmented sovereignty by being reflective, strategic, insightful and inclusive of our knowledge holders and tr traditional custodians enabled through our lived experiences that can manifest and engender broader cultural competence and understanding of the other and ourselves as the longest ongoing cultural survival of people. As a provocateur, I will never be the establishment. And uh, my, uh, my talk tonight is brief, but I would really like to end with um, a quote from Jordan Andrews, a ULOA woman who works in the National Museum of Australia who I've known for a very long time, um, and her sisters, and I just want this to resonate with you. Our objects are our country. They embody our knowledges, our histories, and our connection to the world and each other. Thank you.
Thank you so much, Shani, for speaking from the heart as well. I think so too often in museums we forget that they're not only about people, but people work in them, and it's really important to bring your personal perspectives to the responsibilities that you take. Our next speaker tonight is Mr. Rodney Kelly. Rodney is a Gwigal activist and direct descendant of Cooman, a Gwigal man confronted by Captain James Cook on the shores of Botany Bay in 1770. His lifetime work to get back these things taken by Cook and his men after Cooman's shooting has led to the New South Wales Upper House supporting the notion of for the repatriation and to a publicly funded expedition to British museums to make the request on behalf of his family and Gwigal peoples. We're very fortunate to have Rodney here tonight to speak as well. First off, I want to, you know, pay my respects to elders of the past and present, this great land here, Gadigal country. A big part of the healing of the past, to heal the past, is being able to have our artefacts returned from overseas institutions. You know, there are currently thousands, thousands of items that are overseas. And I've been on this very special campaign uh, to try and get the artefacts back that were taken on that very first day. That very first day in 1770. We have the Gleagle Shield, and we have two spears as well. Now on that day in 1770, what they took home back to England was about 40 to 50 spears, a shield, and other items as well, boomerangs, woomeras, And that was my family, Botany Bay people. That was who my people were. They were there that day. So I took it on my, myself to uh, try and do something for my elders of the past and present. And I wanted to do all I can to bring these artefacts back to Australia, not only for me and my people, but for everybody else in Australia as well. So they could come to a museum and actually see and hear the story about these great artefacts that are over in England right now. So since 1770, all that we have left over there from that day is one shield and there are four spears and a boomerang. The museum at Cambridge, the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology, they have four spears and the British Museum have the shield. And also I found out in the Berlin Museum they have a shield as well and a boomerang with a date 1770 and Botany Bay written next to it. 
So I went over there. I uh, tried to ask them for my people's artefacts back. And, you know, that didn't go too well because to the British, they really think they still own them artefacts. That day in 1770, it's written in their journals that they had shot a man and had taken all his artefacts and, and all the artefacts from the huts. So there's proof there, undeniable proof, that these artefacts do belong here and to my people. But the British, they really do think they own them. And they really do think, you know, they bought them. They rightfully bought them. So I went and had meetings and I tried to tell them, you know, these artefacts, they're not just artefacts or just something to look at in a museum. You know, they hold a lot of knowledge still. You know, that knowledge, knowledge of language, and knowledge of tool making, and knowledge of our trade routes. They can teach all that. And to heal the past, you know, we must get these things returned. So we can tell our story the way we want to. You know, there's thousands and thousands of things overseas. Some of them are still, could still be used in ceremonies today. In the Berlin Museum, they had some sacred objects there and I wasn't allowed to go and view those objects because I'm not an initiated man. And you're only allowed to view those objects uh, if you're an initiated man. And, you know, that's a lot of disrespect right there uh, by holding them sacred objects and, and thinking they own them and not giving them back. So, I've been working on this campaign for over a year. And, you know, there's lots of uh, people putting stop signs up to me. The government, our own government, they have an act that they introduced a few years back. Uh, it gives the British Museum or any museum overseas immunity. So the shield, that beautiful shield, that was taken over, over 200 years ago. You know, that sits over there in the museum now. And our own Australian government have put this act on those artefacts that when the British Museum send anything over here on loan, Australia is bound by this Act of Parliament to send them artefacts back. So even though my ancestors had those artefacts stolen from them, 
we're never allowed to claim them back. British government, they've got their own act on those artefacts. And they're not allowed to de-ascension any of their artefacts unless they're broken or they're a duplicate. So not only do I have the British government against me, also, you know, I've got my own government against me, even though they pass motions supporting me. You know, they're against me as well because they've given the British government and British Museum immunity. So, a big fight for me with these artefacts is, I thought, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great to see an Aboriginal museum, an Indigenous museum, where only Indigenous artefacts, Indigenous artwork are on display, where you are taught by Indigenous people, Indigenous elders, Indigenous young people, where you're taught the, the right way, where you see those tools getting made while you're there viewing tools that are hundreds of years old. So I really think that once we get these artefacts back, I really think, and I know a lot of people would like to see that as well, you know, our own Indigenous museum, with only Indigenous artefacts in there, so our, our story is told the way we want it. And I say that everywhere I go, Germany, England, Amsterdam, everywhere in Australia, that's what I tell them. You know, these artefacts, once we get them back, you know, they're going to be a great centrepiece for our new museum. So that's how the British Museum displays the great shield, the great Quigle shield that's over 200. 46 years old, it was taken on that first day in 1770. Ever since I started fighting for this shield, that's what they started doing. There's a little sign there that says, artifact removed for study. So after all these years, you know, they finally bring it out and trying to study it. And I see a lot of disrespect there right away, you know, like these artefacts mean so much to us. They mean everything to us. You know, our ancestor spirits are in those items. And to see very significant artefact to be displayed in such a way like that amongst a lot of other things 
You know, it breaks my heart. That's a display in Cambridge Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Those two spears there, they were taken in 1770. They were part of those first things taken on that day. They're very, very significant. A lot of people don't know about it. A lot of people haven't heard about them. But they are very, very significant. And they should be to all people in Australia because it is a shared history now. That happened to us on that day as well. But the same thing there with the British, you know. I really think our artefacts deserve more than that and I think they should be the centrepiece of exhibitions because to me they are would have to be one of the most significant artefacts today for our people. And the British they still won't give them back to us. They, they, they belong to this land. You know, they don't belong to people. They belong to this land. They don't belong overseas. They don't belong in overseas museums. So we can see how very significant artefacts get displayed overseas. You know, a big part of decolonisation is us being able to follow the traditions of our past elders and past people. You know, we want to we talk our language like we used to. We, we want to be under our law, because we do have our own laws. Now, that's a part of decolonisation, I think, is being able to, to practise our culture with no restraints. See, I come from a place right down the coast, Wallaga Lake. You know, that's an Aboriginal mission where we were just herded onto, a, herded onto a, some bit of land and weren't allowed to get off, weren't allowed to go to town or anything. Now, a big part of reconciliation is, is being able to Teach everybody about that sort of stuff. Teach people about our artefacts, what they mean to us. 
I really think that, you know, if we all come together and we look at these artefacts, not as something to view, but as something that's alive, and something that could change lives, change people's thoughts, bring culture back to places where it's lost. So uh, uh, a big part of uh, my life is fighting for artefacts to get returned to their people. And I really think that if everybody started to think you know, and join forces and let's try and do something about uh, getting artefacts back from overseas, because there's thousands and thousands of things. And I think you people, everybody in this room, I think you deserve to be able to walk into a museum here and view those items. You know, how many of us are gonna ever get to go to England? You know, I've got a, I've been raising money for over a year. I, I went over there for six weeks, all off of money what I raised on GoFundMe, and I've just done it again as well, heading back over there on another trip, just to try all I can. So a big part of decolonization, reconciliation, is our artifacts. So if everybody, you know, start coming together and, and really want to change, change the way people think about our artefacts and change what people know about our artefacts, I think, you know, Australia will be a, a much better place once we have control of our artefacts and we tell our story the way we want to. Because that's a big part, you know, of who we are. And that's how we want to come across as. So I'd like everybody, I always say this after my talks, you know, I've, I've spoken in a few places in England Amsterdam and Germany and every time I finish talking I, I like to say to people you know even if you're going home and talk about artifacts with your friend with anybody write a status on Facebook anything just try and get it out there and if you don't know much you know Get in there and try and learn something about, you know, some 
sacred artifact and try and hear from somebody, you know, like myself, about how, how much these artifacts mean to us and, and how our lives will change once we start getting control and being able to tell our story. So like everybody, you know, when you're home, just speak about it. Right? That's the best thing that can be done. Let's all talk about artifacts. Let's all talk about these artifacts from 1770 and what it would mean to you to be able to walk into a museum in Sydney and view them. Let's all talk about that to whoever we want. But just make sure we talk about it because I think it's a, it's a big part of my life, of Aboriginal people's life. And I think these artefacts become an important and big part of every non-Indigenous person's life in Australia as well. So I'd like just for everybody to remember that. So thank you. Thank you so much, Rodney. Wow, it's such an important conversation that you're starting. Um, let's not forget, in um, less than three years' time, April 28th, the year 2020, that'll be the 250th anniversary of that fateful encounter. Um, it's within the next few years. If you visit the Gwigal lands, or what they call it today, the Kurnell Peninsula, the most dominant feature of that, of that landscape is a Caltex oil refinery. You know, what does that tell you about Australia? How much better would it be to have an incredible cultural institution representing the living culture of the people before that, before that fateful day. Um, don't, I'll get, <laughs> get on to our next speaker. Um, um, our incredible next speaker is Amanda Reynolds. Amanda is a Garingai Darawa artist, curator, cultural consultant and editor. Through the organisation Stellar Stories, Amanda works in a collaborative projects with communities, museums, galleries and heritage sites to produce stories, exhibitions, multimedia exhibitions and cultural programs. With Genevieve Greaves and Sydney Elders and clans, she created the multimedia artwork Barangaroo Nanamai, Nanamai and has also worked with the Australian Museum, National Museum of Australia, the National Film and Sound Archive, among many other institutions. It's an incredible honour to ask Amanda to speak next. acknowledge the Gadigal people to call out to all their ancestors and old people, uh, pay my respects to country. To the speakers who have come before me, thank you for sharing your stories and the great heart that you had. And I acknowledge you and all your ancestors, wherever you come from. And I've got some of my ancestors here with me. Helps make me confident and strong. But it's Gringai Dharama. So that's the law of my old people that come from north of Sydney. But my other ancestors also come from Britain, convicts in Ireland and different places around the world. And so I'm all of their stories and all of their journeys. And part of my life is this 
passion I have for museums and culture as well is so that I believe and keep wanting to um, create those spaces as cultural spaces and community spaces as well as um, looking after all those wonderful ancestors and spirits and artefacts there and making them places for community and culture so that all of you can come into cultural spaces. Um, today in my talk, I'm just going to share with you, I've been lucky enough in my role as a curator, I see myself as a facilitator for whoever's story, whoever's community I'm working with, and I've been lucky enough to work with lots of different communities from around Australia who have taught me so many different things. And so today, I just want to share a few different teachings that have come to me on that journey. I want us to think about a few words. So collecting institutions and museums. Authority, you know, they're seen as places of great authority of knowledge. Different worldviews. There's Western worldviews and there's Indigenous worldviews and there's a lot to be learned from both different ways. Narratives, whose bigger narrative are we telling? Like that very powerful story we just heard from Rodney about what's the British Museum story but what's the story of that shield here? Thinking about them differently. And then a word I want to share, that's actually a shared word in a lot of languages. It's in the Sydney language and neighbouring languages. North, where I'm from, north side of Sydney, south and around, and it's Nyara. And when we came today, um, Jackie Troy was here who put that Sydney Language Dictionary together you saw and I love it. I said I love it because there's a lot of different words there. When someone takes that time to put them all together it means a lot um, to be able to have that. But that word, um, sometimes when you see it written down it's translated to mean listen, hear and think. And I sort of... Um, want to share something with you and teach you something and ask you to say something and work with me on this. But there's a way to think about that and learn about that concept um, by repeating it three times. So I'm going to say it three times and I'm going to ask you to repeat it. And when you say it, I'm going to ask you the first time, nyara, is to think about listening with your ears. And the second time you repeat it, when you, I want you to think about hearing. I hear, I hear, and I hear with my heart. And then we when we come to think, think, reflect. It's here. It's your umbilical, taking you back to your ancestors. Now, in the Western way, we think that thinking is here. And who has that authority or that story? And how can you get it? By learning from books and information and reading. But in the old way, that has something really special to teach us from here. It's to remember that red road, that bloodline, back to your ancestors and who you're speaking for. And that's why my ancestors from all over the world and from here, I remember that. And that's part of the reason why I'm so passionate about staying with museums and trying to make those spaces come together because in my life, the only way life makes sense to me and my family and those who've come 
before us is to believe that we can find a way to have peace and respect and come together. So you might want to stand up and have a go at trying to say nyara with me or you might want to stay seated. But if to just remind you is um, listen, hear, think. Okay, so nyara. 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 Now I want to teach you something else, is that often when I say that in part of a blessing at the end, I think about giving that blessing to country the first time you say it, to the ancestors the second time you say it, and then to whoever you want to give it to back on your family. You might want to give it to some of those objects in the museums we're talking about today, uh, since that's there, and we can send some blessing and love together through that. So this time before I say it, I'm just going to um, say a phrase, Naiwa Walama Mujumuru, that's saying, all of you and all your ancestors and everyone that you've brought with you here today, together we're going to say Nyara for country. Nyara for ancestors and Nyara for all those artifacts. Okay? So. Naiwa Walamamujumuru. Nyara. 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 You're great, yeah? <laughs> Wait till I make you that. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Part of the reason I wanted to share that with you is because uh, there's so much value to hear and we've heard our speakers today talk about what it means when you hear uh, those objects and those ancestors and those spirits. Country. So this is just from Canberra. I've taken a photo of some of the many institutions and I've had the great honour and privilege of working in many of those institutions because I like to move around. Um, but it's not just museums that's um, collecting and dealing with these challenges of the cultural institutions. There's art galleries, there's libraries, there's archives, there's memorials. Um, there's IATSIS there, you know, the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. And some of, sometimes uh, those institutions um, are the same, same but different. So they're similar in that they're collecting cultural materials from Australian culture, from Aboriginal culture, from other cultures around the world. Um, but they're saying these things, we're different, the library's different from the museum because one collects books and one collects... Um, objects, you know, so that, that's how they're seeing themselves as different. But they have a lot in common and I want us to, this is aerial view of Canberra, I want us to think now then from an Indigenous view because when you look at a lot of our art, it's maps of country, there's a map here, there's a site, when I take this cloak to a site and line it up, lines up with an exact site at the right time of the year. Um, 
but I want to reflect on the words of the now deceased Jungul elder, Dr. Marika, talking about Indigenous worldview. Um, and something I learned from him was, so everything is integrated in the Indigenous worldview. Science, language, culture, law. They're all integrated, whereas in the non-Aboriginal worldview, these things are all taught separately. So again, there's something for all of us to learn and think about um, here from his teaching. I want to take us down to Tasmania, to Bruni Island. Um, I had a great privilege of working with the Tasmanian community for many years on a big project, which was to create a new collection for the National Museum from scratch. And I said to my senior people at the museum, I said, I really want to try this thing where I just go down and ask everyone, what do you want us to collect? How do you want us? What do you want us? What stories do you want us to tell? You tell us everything. You know, I'll just be here to support that and facilitate that. And I was lucky, randomly lucky. They gave me some money and said, all right, this is the budget and everyone can decide within that. Sometimes you get these gifts and these miracles. So um, a lot of the community took me collecting, you know, and thinking about that. And this is Rodney Dillon here. And we've got a book as well. It's called Keeping Culture, an exhibition, big collection that was all decided what would go in there by community. It's all written by community, all the chapters. Um, and one of the things uh, that, a couple of the things that Rodney taught is the purest part of our culture is being able to practice it. That sharing is part of our culture. And when we asked him, what does he want? What message does he want to give to people to reflect on and think about it? I'm reading again a quote. Be proud of our culture. While I think other people's culture is important, other people need to understand how important our culture is to us. The importance of keeping it going, the importance for us to know that our grandchildren will still be here doing this when we die. It's a birth thing, a commitment you've got when you're born that you make, sure that your grandchildren survive. So the culture and the life survives. Be proud of our culture. Be as proud as we are, if not prouder. And when we can come to that, then we've got true reconciliation. This is Arnie Dulcey, who's a shell stringer, uh, who goes out collecting shells to transform into beautiful necklaces. And that's a tradition that's been carried and protected by the aunties all through invasion, all through colonisation. Um, and it's a great symbol of survival. She's in her 90s. This photo is when she was in her 80s, and she says, the reason she's strong and healthy is because she's always out collecting shells. <laughs> and she collects those shells to share culture with everyone, but to wrap the most, the strongest way she can protect her children, who are all grown up now, elders in their own right, is to wrap them in the love of one of those shell necklaces there. 
And that's what she thought was really important to understand because when she went into galleries and museums, they're always in the case by themselves. Um, and so again, that's a gift of teaching that our aunt wanted to show is to make sure there's family photos and people and, and, and that there's all the people who come to the museum can see there's a connection. This is Vicky West. Um, who transforms kelp. In the old days, it was the water carrier. And Vicky's one of the best sculptors in the whole world, what she does with kelp. She can do some stuff with kelp that is beyond, you know, beyond imagining almost. She's just really, really clever. And this is a kelp armour that Vicky made for that exhibition that we talked about there um, with all the community family photo album you can see on the back wall that the elders asked for and Vicky says you know work is about survival and co of culture and celebrating that survival past present and future and another really important thing that Vicky taught that I think is really important to share tonight is making things that's my writing that's our form of writing We've got written traditions in different ways. This is Little Tasmanian Devil, and again, just that power of Vicky's words. She's writing the history of that Tasmanian Devil with the facial tumour there and calling upon everyone who sees this to, we've got to do something about this, protect this animal, protect this country. This is just an example of one of the exhibitions I worked on over at the Australian Museum, Garagrang Sea Country. And I wanted to share you, with you just a quote from one of the elders whose artwork is in there. That's a picture of Baru, which is a crocodile sculpture by Jambua Marawili. And it, teaches about sea rights and the importance of sea rights and being able to manage country according to the old ways because that protects it and cares for it. But one of the things Jambawamara Willie has said about his art and his art practice is this. I want people to look at my paintings and recognise our law. Now again, that's really important because the law might not be written with words in the documents that we collect in the libraries and the archives, but it's written in the objects, in the art form, even by taking the wood from the tree that is the shield, from the possum transforming, from the designs that you're given at birth, from your ancestors, from your country. It's a type of writing, it's a type of art, it's a type of story, but it's connected to everything. Like that other old man taught us, is the worldview, is the law, is the art, is the culture, is the story, is the country, is the people, and so it goes. And that the more we think about that and bringing all of those things back together, the more we can learn. Just wanted to show a photo of Jumbawa there on the right so you can see who it was, those great words, and who created that art piece. And he's sitting next to another old man from the Kimberley, Gabriel Nodia, who I haven't had the chance to meet in person, but I got the chance through one exhibition I was working with 
um, to include some of his material and some of his story in an exhibition that's on at the War Memorial at the moment. It's called For Country, For Nation. It's about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander service, but it's also a little bit more than that if you get a chance to see it. This is one of his beautiful pieces. There we are at the War Memorial. And Gabrielle, in asking Gabrielle, what do you want people to know? Um, is he said, the most important thing that I would like to make clear to the rest of the world is that our art centre is our last line of defence. Our painting and corroboree is like our archive. That's what our old people wanted. That's what the art centre is. It keeps us strong, gives us connection to country, and gives us strength to live in the white man's world. So again, that's that idea of a keeping place or an Aboriginal museum or a cultural centre is a community space. So when I think about what museums can be and what the most that can be offered to everyone and thinking on those questions that Matt raised at the beginning of how exhibitions can, of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander material can engage all visitors meaningfully. The principle is if it's right for community, if community have created it and created that cultural space, then it's a big embrace for everyone to come into a cultural space. And we all know that there's so much interest. Look at all these people here tonight. <laughs> you know, it is this interest. And what comes more than that is a, is a way to be open to another worldview. In my life, I've been so fortunate to be sh have been taught the worldview from many cultures around the world, and it's, it's deeply affected me. And I'm very grateful for those teachings. And I think that we, the more we can learn and understand, the better. If the exhibition, if the story is right for the community, it's right for everyone. You know, it's safe for everyone. There's something really special to learn. So I like to think what a good exhibition looks like. They're all different. There's rooms for different styles. There's rooms for different voices. But it always, in some ways, has to involve community, ancestors, living, and country. That all those things are part of it, where the exhibition is held, the country it's on, the ancestors from there, the people from there, the objects that are in it are from a country, they're from a community, they're from a people. We can't separate those things in the development of the exhibition. They have to be there from the start, behind the scenes, to make good business. I think I'll just finish there with asking you one last time before we finish if I just want you to do nyara again so you won't forget this now, you can go home and practice this. But also really important, we're so used to thinking with our head is when you say it, go to those different places in your body and just keep doing it. Like I have to do it all the time to keep remembering, you know, because you get in there and you're writing this and you're doing that and you're working in a museum and you're doing the other things and you're talking all this language and you're, you know, you're lining up and <laughs> doing things. I have to stop myself sometimes and recenter. So it's not something you've learned once, it's something you practice. 
and it's a way of being. So this time, when we say it those three times, I just think given what everyone's talked about today, we might just give our blessing to all those objects in all those museums. Okay. So nyara. 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 Thank you so much, Amanda. The importance of language and recentering ourselves when we're caught up in so much busy work is just an incredible reminder of how important language is and how important it us, is for us in museums to be naming our objects in languages and letting our audiences experience it in that, in, in that way. Um, I might ask, then thank you to all of our speakers tonight as well. I might ask everyone to come up to the table up here and we should have enough time for maybe four or five questions or so. Um, I'm sure you could probably come up with a hundred of questions. <laughs> There's so many complex areas that people have gone across tonight, but um, it'd be just fantastic to hear everyone's, what people would like to hear a little bit further. I have to ask the whole panel, if we were to honor the Gadigal and of course the Gwigal, thank you, it's great to have your presence here. Um, and of course the Tharwal and, um, Garingai, it's a, what a what a Sydney mix. It's fantastic. If we were to have um, some representation here at Sydney University that honoured that this is the stolen land of the Gadigal people, what form would it take? The shield coming back, I think, <laughs> on prominent display. Is sorry, I'm jumping in there, yeah. but. Yeah, you know, you'd have to start with, with yeah, our artefacts from this area. Uh, and, you know, yeah, just... Because we do have some, you know, specific specific artefacts from this area, so, yeah, if, if we could get, you know, all them things in that one place, you know, where they can really tell the story of these different tribes, you know, that would be a great, great start and just to... Uh, as well as that, to actually see those things getting made by the people as well, you know, that would be a great thing as well. Not only just going to see them, you know, on display, but actually seeing people making those artefacts from those different tribes would, you know, that'd be a good start. Um, just before we move on, can I just add something to that? Um, is that I think when we think about what, what it might look like, we should think about what does the process look like rather than the outcome, because um, we should think about all of those principles of you know, the elders being involved, the community being involved, uh, involving young people in the chance to making it, you know, investing money in community to have those chance to give that story. So I think, thinking about the process of how it's created and making sure we're doing all those things right is, is far more important because if you follow a really good process that's got all the protocols and respect, the outcome will be beautiful and brilliant. 
Hello. Um, I just have a question for, well, it's more, and maybe it's a question for everyone. Um, but Stephen, you're, you stated at the beginning about sovereignty and being able to be a sovereign person within this world that we're in right now. Um, but you also said you didn't believe in decolonization. I find that, you know, it takes away from work that people are doing at the community level, at doing repatriation and language revitalization and bringing forward the ontological and epistemological views from indigenous people. Um, but when you did talk about indigenization, I wanted to know, like, how are you guys working with indigenous, like, how are you guys indigenizing your spaces? Because a lot of the work I've seen were still very, um, sorry, Rodney was showing some of the stuff from the museums and it hasn't changed from, you can go to the museum in Britain and go to the museum here and they're still looking the same. The, the artifacts are still put up the same way. So how are you guys indigenizing that's your spaces and especially Matt with the new McClay being started up soon? I would like to hear about the new McClay too. <laughs> um, thankfully we have a little bit of time. I mean the most important thing is embedding communities perspective in the way that they're represented. So the more conversations we have the more we actually embody language in those conversations to be able to, for example, with the first example, to record the process of remaking shields or remaking spears that are sort of missing in museum collections and document a process that can be taught for future generations of people is one way that we can just be transparent about the, the unethical aspects of the past and still acknowledge those have happened, but also be building towards the future which might seem very aspirational, but they are small steps. And the more we do it, the more we build upon that, I'd say. Yeah, in my teaching, I often, you know, like to make the indigenous, indigeneity very legible, you know, and so we make sure that, you know, when we acknowledge um, people, that we say the place now termed Australia, you know, that we say that there is a pre-existing history, and that's really important. And. I don't want to say that I don't, I don't necessarily agree with decolonization, um, but I do think that, um, you know, for me, um, you know, indigenization seems to have a much more powerful political connotation. Um, and, you know, to be, rec you know, Tuscarora scholar Jolene Ricard, who works at Cornell, says that, you know, just because colonial nation states define what sovereignty is for them and for us, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to accept it. And so, you know, for me, that kind of political kind of, you know, maybe some people think it's kind of semantics, um, but I think it's, it's, it, it changes the positioning from a defensive position to an offensive position. And I think that that itself is not political power, but it, it contributes to, um, you know, political solidarity. And that's exactly what I'm trying to kind of do. No, I think for me, for me, indigenization is to accept the brokenness, is to accept, um, you know, whatever kind of historical wrong that has occurred. It's not to ignore it, but it's to say that it doesn't start from colonization. No, no, I, I, did, I did say that, you know, for me, that they're both productive. And I think that they need to be seen in tandem. 
Um, but for me, I think there is a different inflection to both of them. Sorry, I have a question. She gave me a microphone. Oh, I'm mad enough. I'll be right. Um, Rodney, um, I'm not sure if I got it right, but did you mean find that the Australian government was supporting you to some extent with what you're trying to do originally, allow now, unlike the English government? Is that what you were saying? Just want to uh, talk a bit more about that. Yeah, the uh, Australian government, uh, federal and New South Wales, have passed motions through through their parliaments to um, recognise that those artefacts are stolen uh, from Kernel, uh, but they've still got the act. There's two acts. There's an act that Australian government has on on anything that comes into Australia on loan. Uh, yeah, so that gives them immunity, and the British Act uh, pretty much says that the British Museum is not allowed to let anything go out of their collections unless you know they're rotted away, broken, or, or duplicates. So, yeah, the while the Australian government has passed motions through New South Wales and federal parliament, well, that's pretty much all they've done. So. Yeah, even though they, yeah, nah, they like the federal government. Uh, it passed through the federal uh, government the motion, but uh, Turnbull and Eastmob uh, turned around and said that they believed the British Museum uh, have legal rights to those artefacts. So even though they didn't have the enough votes to to vote it down, they still come out and said that they believe the British have legal ownership to those. Yeah, so while, while they're, they've helped with the motion, putting through to acknowledge it, yeah, I, they've pretty much done nothing, yeah. Um, sorry. So going back to what you were saying about having um, a museum and being able to produce tools in front of people and teach culture, um, I actually went to New Zealand a couple of years ago and I visited a cultural centre where they're doing that with the native indigenous people in New Zealand, the Maoris. And um, it made me think, why don't we have anything like that here in Australia? And that is definitely somewhere that all Australians would love to go and I think would be a really productive thing for indigenous culture in Australia to, to teach young children about their culture. Um, does anything like that exist at all or is there anything being put forward? Um, in our small towns, uh, like down the coast, down in Eden, we've got like culture centres, and they're run by Aboriginal people. And you know, uh, visitors come there and, and see those artefacts and, and see those artefacts being made as well. But like these are only in small country towns, and and we're not getting the visitors, you know, that that we should, at, like in a place like Sydney. So while we do have these sort of uh, organisations and that in our smaller towns, we need something, you know, on a bigger scale that's, you know, so huge that, that just everybody's just going to come to it. Yeah, I travelled with my boyfriend, sorry, um, and he was a Kiwi and he said that um, it was more like, almost like a TAFE version, it was a more nationwide mm -hmm. thing, I, I think. So. It was like an initiative to bring young children out of um, 
just reconnect them with the land and actually learn things. So do you think that it could possibly be become like TAFE, be a, a wider national initiative? Yeah, no, it could be could definitely, definitely be like that, you know. Like, a lot of our youth now are lost, you know. They've got no culture in them. Uh, so that's definitely one way that could get these young Indigenous youth to rise up and, and you know, really take this culture on and, and teach it and learn it because, you know, it's not getting learnt at the moment. Just, uh, you know, a lot of, lot of people are just not into it now. So we need, we need something like that, like, yeah, they have over there that, that uh, get these youth involved as well because, you know, it's all up to the youth. If we don't teach these youth anything about the answers and that, you know, it's going to get lost. So I, I really think that would be the greatest way to achieve, you know, what we're talking about. That's exactly what I was thinking. Thank yeah. you. I think we have to remember that we are many nations. Um, one of the things, sorry, just really quickly to add to that is um, one of the things that I think um, as the broader Australian community for us to think about too is um, sometimes places are set up and the emphasis or the access to funding to do it is always with a tourism um, focus, which is really important because, as you know, everyone wants to share culture, we want to teach it and do that. But we need just as much equal investment in education um, and education in old ways, like whether it's making things, learning from elders, coming together in those community spaces, in those cultural spaces, because you don't just magically um, can be able to do everything and know everything. It, it, it happens over your lifetime. I didn't get my designs till I was close to 40, um, really. And, you know, even though I was always a curator and doing things, I, I never did any art or making. I, you know, I, I had to be ready. I had to be told I was ready. I had to get that chance. So. Um, there's knowledge and different stages that comes at different stages of life and that, con that concept in this modern world where we have to live and work and earn money um, is how can we all be part of protecting a living culture into the future by recognising things and sometimes you can get artist fellowships or scholarships or sometimes you can get a job with parks and wildlife that gives you some opportunity but there needs to be a bigger part of the Australian consciousness um, to, to really respect those living treasures that they can continue and still be able to, you know, afford a, to pay their electricity bills and things as well. Um, and that's where we value what we do and don't value, you know. Um. Um, I just wanted to ask, if it's okay, um, what can current institutions do to um, further this um, obviously really important um, concern. I'm in, I have in mind the Australian Museum in particular. Um, what is it that they're doing now that they could do better? Um, and what is it that they're not doing now that they need to change, perhaps? Gosh, where do I start? <laughs> Okay, where was I? Uh, so, um, been back at the Australian Museum for five months, and um, I uh, was fortunate to work with John Kirkman, uh, Maud Page, who's now the Deputy Director of the Art Gallery of New South Wales, Louisburg, some fantastic Aboriginal visitor service officers, 
and, um, and myself and other members of the Australian Museum and forging a kind of a museum gallery hybrid, which was quite at the fore of its time. And, and when things turned differently and I took a voluntary redundancy, uh, I said I would never work at the museum again. And you know, my career has been filled with this journey of, of knowing more about culture, knowing more about myself, working with community, working in with different industries. And as it turned out, I'm where I'm meant to be. And it's not an easy journey, and it's a challenge every day. I have to brace myself and, and say my mantras and protect myself when I walk through that door. And I work with those objects, and I engage with my colleagues, but it's about you know, being that, that agent of change and to collaborate with your peers and to change the value of the culture and the institution, knowing its past, knowing its history, because that doesn't happen overnight. And we do that collegially, we do that collectively, and we build it. We enable others to come on that journey with us. So we have a long way to go. Um, we're working on an Aboriginal strategy. I've been fortunate that um, we, the museum um, employed a consultant, an Aboriginal company, to start working with the museum and its staff, its Aboriginal staff and its champions, to look at that process. And that includes you know, pathways for Aboriginal staff, looking at the collections, where, where we can build the capacity of our non-Aboriginal staff. So these things take time. And the conversations that, that I've had is around. And um, the analogy started you know, with, with our CEO and, and others that you know, it's a big ship. It takes a long time to steer that around. And the other conversations, you know, as I talk about this, is that, you know, you need those little tugboats, you know, to, to kind of move that big ship. And, you know, I'm very impatient. I want these things to happen overnight, you know. I want it to happen now. And um, when I reflect on just my time and, and the time of my colleagues about what they've achieved and where we're going, you know, we will get there. And we always say, all of us say, you know, we'll get there. And we're working in other ways and we have to remember that people come with their own discourse and, and their own heritage and their own values and to, to respect that. You know, the museum historically is a natural history science museum. Now, I come from an art history and curatorial background and a policy background and enabling you know, Aboriginal arts and cultural practitioners to forge uh, a, a life and engage in this contemporary space. So, yeah, we can do more. And internally, you know, we're working, working with HR, working with the CEO to look at ways that we can create opportunities. And sometimes those challenges are difficult, but it's about remembering that somebody has to take up the challenge and there is, you know, loaded responsibility and we'll not always get it right. I certainly won't get it right. And in my life's journey, I know I still have a long way to go. But being open and receptive to being collegial and, and enabling others, and that's what we can do across the nation. Hi, um, sorry, just over here. Um, I work for an organisation that, uh, well, state government funded organisation that uh, looks after house museums throughout Sydney. Uh, we have an Aboriginal action plan and we have these colonial houses on Aboriginal land and we will be employing Aboriginal people. And I manage staff on the ground who are engaging with people day to day and telling the stories of some of the houses that, and the Aboriginal land that on which they house, uh, they're housed on. I'm a Wiradjuri descendant, so I find it a little bit easier to speak with some kind of authority. But for a lot of non-Aboriginal staff, they want to tell the stories, but they don't feel as if they 
have some sort of licence or authority to do that. Are there any advice that you could give me to, um, to help them feel comfortable or to help them feel that they can actually be able to speak about um, the Aboriginal stories that are, you know, are, are captured and uh, are, in, are in those places in which we manage? Everything from you know, for staff who are on front of house or even uh, to create that sort of really comfortable, safe work culture where they tell those stories with accuracy. Well, I think that's where the really, um, the great thing about contemporary art as opposed to, you know, museology. You know, contemporary art is a, one of the best vehicles for people to tell their stories, to mm -hmm. test their ideas, to challenge themselves and practice culture in a visual language outside the English language. So, um, you know, there's, there's always this division between contemporary art and museums, but through the incredible work that's happened over a number of years and over recent decades, you see those barriers breaking down. So, um, just off the top of my head, yeah, I think maybe more arts and workshop and more uh, letting people be open-minded about telling their own personal stories, more channels like that is a great way to actually have those discussions that you might like to have. But yeah, that's just a, an initial response. I mean, there are many cultural competency um, courses. TAFE New South Wales is also a registered training organisation which delivers the uh, certificate for you know, Aboriginal cultural education. Um, that is one avenue. There are other providers who have digital platforms. And I think really, and, and I guess some of the conversations that I've had is that, you know, people kind of either don't want to take their own kind of personal responsibility to do things or they kind of think, oh, it's too hard or they're too scared, they might make a mistake. But the only way of knowing that you can make a difference in enabling and developing your cultural competency is by speaking and engaging with others and asking those questions because we don't all have the answers. You know, we're all still learning and, and practising culture in, in a myriad of ways and to... It's about that, that, that growth as, as an individual over time and to, you know, like, like, any, like any culture, that you do the research and you, you take those provisions for yourself um, and enable others to, to move on that journey with you so that they have the competence because they're also agents of change as well and championing that because, you know, we can't do it alone. And so there are ways and certainly contemporary art practice is one way of engaging that dialogue in a very different way. One quick little tool, it's, not, it's just one tool among many you could use, but um, sometimes um, when I've done an exhibition um, working with a particular community, as part of the getting ready, because you know there's lots of, you know, you've got your Koori staff or your Aboriginal staff, um, but you know you've got a lot of other staff as well, and you want to embrace and teach people, but is, I've put as a component is, the staff have a chance to sit down with the community member who shared that story. So it's coming back to that word authority I brought up, who's authority. So how you've learned a story and how you've been said by a community, like when you're working as a staff member in these museums, is if you follow the process of this community, this elder, this artist has given this to this public space to be shared because they want it shared, Let's try and have a session for staff where they come and learn direct from that person. You know, so this is all about the process that I keep going on about, the making process. They've heard it 
from the person whose story it is who has the authority to share it, that gives confidence to people because then if visitors ask them about everything in the whole world, they can say, I've only been taught this story and in this knowledge system, I'm only allowed to speak for what I've been given permission to speak for, you know, those sort of things because that reinforces our way of teaching because everyone wants all these facts and wants to know everything um, and, uh, you know, that's a very Western education system. So the more we can reinforce this way of how you learn a story, how you're allowed to be part of it and how you're allowed to share of it with, with everyone is, is the more confidence we can grow for those staff. So that's one example. Hi. We've just got one more question. We've yeah, got a lot of time. We're very patient. Thank you. Um, thanks, everyone, for, your, for sharing your stories. Um, Rodney, I've been following your story for a little while now, so we're all rooting for you. Um, my question is to Matt and Stephen. Um, how does the university make the objects in its collection available to community? We do prioritise community access. Um, when we have the resources, we notify different community members about things that we have. Um, it's, it's pretty well an open door policy where we do prioritise um, community members wishing to access them and we also ask that non-Indigenous researchers bring to us, they do the legwork in actually asking for permission to access information or to publish images of materials. So um, just through the simple act of prioritising community access and insisting that anyone else who wants to work with that material work closely with the communities whose information they're seeking to represent. Um, I think that's the best way that we can sort of uh, be transparent about the process and show to other community members that we're, this is the process that we take to make this accessible. Okay, one more, but yeah. <laughs> I'd just like to ask what provisions the university has taken or is going to take to display the very considerable collection of Aboriginal art and artefacts in the new museum that's about to be built. I guess that's me. Um, we have a consultation process over the next couple of years and we're very keen to take on board as much feedback, whether that is about the, how they should be exhibited or whether they should not even be exhibited I would suggest, just to finish on Saturday, we actually have a question and answer session in the Nicholson Museum about the new museum project, and hopefully that would be a great opportunity to get some more info. But, you know, there's a great history of academics and different people associated with the university over many numbers of years who have um, been quite generous in sharing their contacts and their networks and their research that they've done and will be, as much as possible, relying on the friends of the university as such to help us, you know, not reinvent the wheel and, you know, build upon the many, you know, decades of research that people have um, brought to our objects and with the community's consent, return that into new exhibition spaces in the new museum project. But there is a plan to exhibit as much as we possibly can of the collection in the new museum project. That's something that I'm working on and quite passionate about. Good luck. Well, <laughs> a lot of people don't know. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for coming along, and thank you to our speakers, too.
Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.